Welcome to a Cult of Personality at cultofpersonality.net. Thank you for listening. Welcome to a Cult of Personality esoteric podcast extraordinaire. Peering behind the veil to provide you with recorded interviews with esoteric teachers and scholars from all over the world. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky, and you can find our website at occultofpersonality.net, featuring an extensive archive of recorded interviews. Welcome back. This is podcast episode number 131, featuring an interview with Randall Carlson of Sacred Geometry International. The Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to the Occult of Personality membership section. Your support allows for the continuation of free recorded podcasts and the publicly available archive. If you're not already a subscriber to the membership section, please take a moment to click the link on the sidebar of the occultofpersonality.net website or browse to occultofpersonality.net slash membership and peruse the available content. Access to everything costs only $7.95 per month, and there's no obligation. It's a great way to support independent media. You can also support the show and sponsor an episode by donating via the PayPal Donate button on the website. This episode is sponsored by Chris, Steve M., Thomas W., and Dream Cycle Creations, vendor of tarot cards, divination tools, and magical implements at dreamcyclecreations.com. Thanks again. Now, in episode number 131, our guest is Randall Carlson of Sacred Geometry International. You can find his website at sacredgeometryinternational.com. Randall Carlson is a master builder, architectural designer, teacher, geometrician, geomythologist, explorer, and renegade scholar. For over 40 years, he's researched the interface between ancient mysteries and modern science. Randall has been an active Freemason for 30 years and is past master of one of the oldest and largest Masonic lodges in Georgia. He has been recognized by the National Science Teachers Association for his commitment to science education for young people. His work incorporates ancient mythology, astronomy, earth science, paleontology, symbolism, sacred geometry, architecture, geomancy, and other disciplines. For over 25 years, he has presented classes, lectures, and multimedia programs synthesizing this information for students of the mysteries. With these unique qualifications, Randall's aspiration is to effect a revival of lost knowledge towards the goal of creating the new world based upon universal principles of harmony, freedom, and spiritual evolution. Randall Carlson, I want to welcome you to A Cult of Personality podcast. It is a pleasure to speak with you. It's great to be here, Greg. Yes, thank you for joining us. For 
people who are listening who may not be familiar with you and your work, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your interest in geometry, esotericism, and ancient history? I could certainly do that. My interest in geometry, I think, extends way back into my youth. I just was always interested in matters of mathematics. And my father was a professional builder, as was my grandfather. <clears throat> and so uh, it was, I think, perhaps, you know, growing up around building sites and seeing things come up out of the ground and, and um, take shape. And, uh, you know, my father would use a lot. Of, he designed most of what he built. He built about 200-plus residences over his career pretty much all of the ones that he designed himself. So I would stand at his shoulder, you know, as a kid when he was at the drafting board, um, drawing up plans and so forth. And then I got very interested in that and started learning blueprint drawing and reading probably when I was about 13 or 14 and had no intentions of actually following in his footsteps because uh, it was later on that I sort of fell back on the uh, the construction process to to make a living while I was going to figure out what I really was going to do. But uh, once I got into it, I found that I really enjoyed the whole process of, you know, conceiving of something and then going through the whole step-by-step -step sequence of bringing it into, you know, manifestation. So I, uh, I kind of got hooked on the whole process of, of building and, uh, I guess also being a product of the, the sixties, you know, I came out of that whole, that whole era. Um, and so I had lots of experiences that, uh, some of us had back in those days that led me to, um, matters of the spirit and, uh, which led me as many, uh, many of, uh, that era to, to look to various spiritual traditions to the East, um, to Western esotericism and so forth. So uh, I guess by the early 70s, I had gone through a number of initiations, um, had begun studying um, uh, Vedic philosophy and uh, the Upanishads and reading a lot of uh, Eastern philosophy. And we had a, uh, a teacher, uh, this would have been about 1971, 72, um, a Swami, uh, from the Himalayas and, uh, we were living where I grew up in Minnesota. We had a, uh, uh, the, the group that I was a member of, we, we bought land in the woods of Northern Minnesota. And one of the architects in the, uh, in the group designed a couple of, uh, Buckminster Fuller domes, which were very popular back in those days. And so I had a, uh, was because of the fact that I was one of the few people in the group that had had actual building experience. I was drafted to construct these two geodesic domes. And one of them, he was, was inspired by, um, Islamic geometry and, um, Hindu temple geometry. He'd kind of synthesized some of those, uh, features into the design of one of the domes. So having been involved in the building of those, I got very fascinated in the work of Buckminster Fuller and uh, begin to study his, procured and begin to study his works on synergetics. And um, that kind of led me into the whole um, realm of, of form and geometry and how it related to architecture, 
when um, when the, the dome, the, the uh, it was called or referred to as a Bindu dome because it emanated from a central point. It was uh, spire shaped, and uh, it was featured in a in a uh, a journal, a national journal called Shelter at the time. And of course, since I had worked on it, I procured that that particular issue. And in there, they had some information about Islamic geometry, which I found obsessively fascinating. And they also had a brief introduction to some of the concepts of um, sacred geometry, which was not really well known then. It was pretty much just a reference to the golden section and the golden rectangle. Some references to the work of Le Corbusier, who uh, who utilized the um, the golden section in his modular system. So through these exposures, it just pretty much led me into the field. I began searching out information on how geometry had been employed in architecture by various cultures. And uh, this led me to an interest in both Islamic mosque architecture and in Gothic cathedrals, principally at, at that period, about the mid-70s. And... Um, Sort of paralleling with that was my interest in various spiritual modalities. So I had been exploring for a number of years Eastern spiritual traditions. And then, uh, you know, probably 73 to 75 became more interested in Western uh, spiritual traditions. So I began investigating Kabbalah and Hermetic traditions and alchemy. And it wasn't long before I began to see that there was lots of overlap between these various disciplines. And... Um, <clears throat> So pretty much one thing led to another. I, I discovered the, the, uh, that the Freemasons, uh, references to Freemasons kept coming up throughout the course of my studies and research. So I, um, just by coincidence, you know, how these things work, uh, I happened to meet a Freemason, uh, who was interested in some of the things that I was doing with, um, trying to design structures based on my limited knowledge at that time of sacred geometry. And, uh, well, it wasn't long before I asked him, uh, well, how do you become a member of the craft? Well, you know, then that set the whole thing into motion. So I was initiated in 1978, raised in March of 79, and um, have been pretty much an active Freemason ever since. Um, and I, you know, you know, over the next couple of decades, I began to do, do a considerable amount of traveling uh, to Europe, um, to Central America, to, uh, to Egypt and other places to try to get a firsthand experience of the sacred architecture. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I started teaching classes um, about the early 1980s, 80, 81, when I had amassed enough information, I think, that and discovered that there were other people who were actually kind of interested in it. So I started putting together some programs, and I've been doing that pretty much steadily since since 1980, I believe, was my first class. And I've organized uh, workshops, classes, you know, seminars and so forth uh, off and on over the years. And I guess I've probably had somewhere around a thousand students if I added them all up over the years and um, hopefully inspired a few of them to, to go deeper. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess that's kind of a, in a nutshell how I got into it. There are a lot of details, of course, left out and, you know, inspirational figures, you know, discovering the work of Keith Critchlow. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a British architect who studied extensively into um, Islamic architecture and the use of geometry 
Um, also the work of John Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of this is pretty much mid to late seventies and, um, Oh, a number of others, but, uh, those were, those two were pretty much the main sources of inspiration around that time that, you know, launched me into what I would say my obsession with all this kind of information. Yeah. That's interesting. <clears throat> Do you believe that, uh, your interest in the subject of sacred geometry and associated other subjects seem to blossom at the same time as, as many of these other authors and teachers brought out material. It seemed almost like a, a renaissance in the subject in the, in the late seventies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I turned to, um, you know, I, I began to investigate as many existing sources of information as I could. <clears throat> I am um, familiar with the, you're probably familiar with the work of Frater Achad, who was um, I think he was Golden Dawn. Um, were, did a couple of works on Kabbalah, mm-hmm. the Anatomy of the Body of God, um, several others. Those were early works that I accessed. Um, you know, available. You know, Samuel Weiser was publishing a lot of interesting stuff back in those days, and. Um, there was also the work of Jay Hambage, who um, was sort of the rediscoverer of dynamic symmetry. And uh, dynamic symmetry is essentially, um, you know, the, the study of geometric harmony, The with the basic definition of harmony being that in any composition, there's a specific relationship between the part and the whole, that the part is a reflective of the, the proportions of the whole and vice versa. And he uh, wrote, did most of his work in the 1920s. And Dover published, republished his stuff. And I, I think I stumbled on that or found it probably in the late seventies when it came out. But most definitely, I, I think that we began seeing around that time, um, you know, a major, um, expansion of the availability of, of material and lots of new researchers that have, have done incredible stuff since then. Um, cause yeah, they're just, it, there just wasn't that much back, you know, in those, those days in the seventies. And then you certainly do see a proliferation during the eighties and nineties. And it's, it's still going on with new works. I believe, um, you have been studying, um, the work of David Fiedler mm-hmm. or Fiedler, um, Jesus Christ, son of God that I found very inspiring when that came out. He really synthesized a lot of this kind of information showing the links between architecture and geometry and language and, um, yeah, very fascinating stuff. And then, um, <clears throat> oh, the work of Robin Heath, oh, quite a number of others that have, have published stuff in, in recent years. And, um, yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, to me, I'm seeing that there's sort of a renaissance perhaps in the works where we reconnect with a lot of the traditions that have been, um, more or less in hibernation for centuries. And now we're realizing that our, our legacy from the past is much, much richer than we had really even imagined a generation or two ago. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with you. Could you take a few minutes and just talk a little bit about your objectives in teaching the, this ancient wisdom through sacred geometry international? Sure. Well, of course, you know, once you, once you begin to immerse yourself in these, this kind of material, you 
you become convinced, or at least I have become convinced that it would be of value to my fellow man and that it would be very useful, you know, in these discordant times in which we live, um, to recover any kind of um, principles of harmony uh, that seem to have um, inspired, uh, you know, societies in the past. Um, I, you know, I just, since I love the material so much, I, I just really, really enjoy sharing it. And, and, you know, when I take somebody, a student through the whole process and, it's very satisfying to me when they have these aha moments mm. when they suddenly see how things fit together in a new way. Um, so in a way it's kind of my own, you know, I get a lot of satisfaction from not only um, <clears throat> the teaching of it, but the, um, you know, uh, I love the research. Uh, I love making new connections and new discoveries, but I also love taking, you know, a student through the process and, um, and seeing that, seeing that, uh, that they're inspired by it as well. And I, and of course, you know, I look at the big picture and I think that, uh, it would be great if we could start incorporating some of these principles into our daily life, like in, you know, um, in, incorporating them into an educational curriculum. For example, I've set up programs that have been, um, uh, for, for children, for, for young people. I've done a lot of, um, organizing. Of, of um, mathematic and geometric uh, geometric uh, programs for homeschool students. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have um, organized programs probably for somewhere around 200 to 250 homeschool students since the early 90s. And um, I have incorporated sacred geometry into those programs. And, and, and in some cases have inspired some of these kids to actually go into fields you know, related, um, into art history and into archaeology and architecture and so forth. And that too, I find tremendously satisfying that I could, um, you know, perhaps inspire a young person to, to delve into this kind of thing. And, um, I certainly would like to see that, uh, this material, these, this kind of information could get out there on a large scale and perhaps, introduce a, a little bit more harmony into the world because I think we could certainly use that. I would agree with you completely. Now for those listeners who aren't familiar with the subject mm. as much as you and I might be, um, what are some of the main themes mm. explored as part of the study of sacred geometry? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, certainly we can see it. It has, historical importance because it was obviously important to ancient peoples around the, the world. Um, you know, it was incorporated into their architecture, into their art, in, into their philosophy. Um, you know, I don't think we can really get to the roots of understanding Western civilization without, you know, talking about Plato and Pythagoras and Euclid. And of course, you know, they were immersed in this subject, um, you know, clearly, in the Pythagorean perspective, geometry was considered a, a sacred subject. Um, so from a historical standpoint, I think it's, it's valuable because we're kind of in a way reconnecting with an archaic perspective on, on things, um, who I believe tended to look at things more holistically than we do today. We have sort of a reductionist science that tends to take things apart, but fails to put them back together again. And um, when we look at, you know, 
the metaphysics of of that prevailed throughout history i think what we see is that there was a there was this holistic view and if, from the standpoint of trying to understand getting into the minds of our predecessors on this planet i think it's valuable from that that perspective um you know it's a uh it's it's a methodology that can be employed in a lot of different contexts. Of course, I try to use it in building as much as possible. Many of my students have been artists and graphic designers, um, you know, who found ways to employ it. I've had, you know, stained glass artisans. I've had rug weavers uh, that have taken my courses. Um, and so I've tried to tailor some of the material to, you know, I'm very much into the idea of practical applications, using it to, you know, enhance essentially this, the beauty of our environment, if nothing else. Um, so it typically in a course, what I'll do is we start out with the, the, the very fundamental techniques, which is just a straight edge and a compass and a clean sheet of a clean drawing pad. And we begin with the very simple exercises. Um, you know, creating the, the vesica piscus and showing how the whole realm of two-dimensional Euclidean geometry can emerge from the simple overlap of two circles. And so I take them through a, a, an ever-increasing uh, series of, of exercises that, that increase in complexity as we go so that ultimately we've created all of the, learn how to draw the polygons and then once we've kind of mastered this level of, of two-dimensional geometry, then we go um, into the domain of three dimensions. And so we begin to build models, uh, sometimes out of sticks, sometimes out of, um, you know, uh, model board or rather, um, you know, poster board. And, um, and then, you know, try to, show that there are applications. So, you know, we'll study, um, we'll get into some Kabbalah, Kabbalah, so that, that they can see that these same geometric principles that we've been working with are actually underlying the language of the sacred texts that we've inherited from old. Um, also get into studying um, some earth history, some geology and some astronomy to show how the numbers that, that emerge when you're working with these patterns, the proportions, the the ratios that are expressed through numbers, that those same patterns and same proportions can be found throughout the natural order. And one of the things I try to emphasize is that when you work with these patterns and forms, of course, you're working with spatial relationships. Uh, you're, you're talking about patterns in space. Uh, I also try to demonstrate how we can see and uh, translate these into terms of, of time so that um, the numbers that we see uh, prevalent in the ancient temple architecture are also the numbers that we see prevalent in the um, the cycles and periodicities of time. Uh, for example, the great year, which is the processional cycle. Uh, which we know to be about 26,000 years in length uh, based upon astronomical determinations. But, of course, we don't know the exact um, period of that simply because our observations of the whole cycle are, are too limited at this point. But we know that, you know, from Vedic traditions and others, that there was a sacred number of 25,920 that was used to represent the idea of the great year. And... um that, for example, will divide itself into four seasons, usually represented by the four fixed signs of the zodiac, 
uh, the Taurus, Aquarius, Leo, and Scorpio. And if you look at this full cycle of, of roughly of 25,920 years in the context of, of the annual year, um, it divides itself, as does our annual year, into 12 months and four seasons. The 12 months, of course, being the four, or rather the 12 uh, zodiacal ages, the age of you know Aries, the age of Pisces, the age of Aquarius, and so forth. And um, the seasons are, um, you know, each uh, groups of three, so there's four of them, and they work out to be about 6,480 years. Well, <clears throat> when we look at the... Uh, Go, turning back to spatial geometry in terms of the, um, like the platon, the five platonic solids. What's interesting is that if we take each of the platonic solids and we represent them by a number, when the, and the number would be determined by the total number of degrees that measures each of the platonic solids. So for example, the icosahedron would, has a total number of 3,600 degrees. If you take the degrees, of each of the the uh, triangular faces, and there's 20 triangular faces. Um, the cube, for example, has has a total number of degrees of 2,160. The dodecahedron, 6,480 degrees, comprises the whole form of the dodecahedron, and that happens to be the same number uh, of years in a season of the great year, and. A month of the great year, which would be one astrological age, has on average 2,160 years, and that's the same number of degrees in the cube. The ancient Chaldean Saros cycle uh, was uh, determined to be 3,600 years, and then, of course, that's the same number of degrees that's in the icosahedron. And and so it goes. So I, I try to demonstrate in there that... Um, that there's this linkage between time and space represented by this sacred canon of numbers, if you will. And so then I also turn to geology because geology um, essentially shows that there are points of discontinuity within the history of the Earth. And what's very interesting is that when you look at some of the most recent dating of some of the uh, geological events that have altered the, the balance of nature, there seems to be a repetitive pattern that falls very, very close um, to the ancient ideas of, of cyclicity. So, for example, we have the last phase of the Great Ice Age uh, commencing around 26,000 years ago, and we have the sudden termination of the Ice Age occurring right almost precisely at 13,000. In fact, the most recent dating uh, that's been published in the scientific literature is placing the date at 12,900 years, which, you know, 12,960 is precisely half of this processional cycle that according to um, the, the work of the Hamlet's Mill, which you might be familiar with, mm -hmm. um, uh, has uh, they've made the case that um, the archaic measure of time was based upon this processional cycle and that it was known um, to ancient peoples, ancient astronomers, long before Hipparchus presumably discovered it around 300 BC or so. So I, I try to get into uh, showing how you know how universal are the applications and implications of of the the subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. <clears throat> now. Uh, could you talk a little bit about? maybe some of the reasons or your opinions about the reasons why the ancients would have 
wanted to reflect these numbers, these proportions um, in their architecture, um, whether it's, uh, you know, proportions found in the human form or whether it's uh, proportions or numbers found in cycles of time or even the positions of, of stars, um, it, it seemed like they were concerned about reflecting all of these type of values through their their art and their architecture. Sure. Well, that, that that's a question that I'm constantly keeping in the in the uh, forefront of all my particular researches. You know, what what was the origin of this inspiration? Um, you know, if we turn to the traditions themselves, they always seem to suggest that somehow the quote unquote gods were involved in this, um, in handing down principles of, of agriculture and architecture and geometry and all of this, um, that seems to be very consistent. Um, uh, you know, I think we're kind of on the threshold of discovering that there's a lot more to ancient history, um, prehistory than we had previously been able to recognize. And in some ways, a lot deeper and a lot stranger than, you know, we, we had imagined it to be, particularly when we get back into the the very the deep parts of history going back tens of thousands of years ago um somewhere this inspiration came from and i and i you know it i could not define that or pinpoint it I, all i could do is speculate um you know that it was born out of some kind of experiences of higher consciousness and what that exactly means whether it's an experience of of an inner reality or manifesting itself in in some kind of an outer reality you know i think when we get into these higher states of consciousness you know the 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 barriers the distinction between um inner and outer tend to sort of dissolve um keith critchlow in in his work you know the uh, quote that i use a lot in my my programs where he says that the architecture of the inner is an arch reflection of the architecture of the outer and vice versa. And that's very hermetic in the sense, same sense of, you know, as it is above, so it is below. <clears throat> and it would seem like, you know, the, the attempt, the, the building of a, uh, a temple that um, reflected the heavenly geometry was a literal effort to, um, manifest this relationship of as above so below um you know there are many examples emerging now where we can see you know patterns of temple architecture sacred architecture reflecting um the celestial patterns above i mean the the most probably well known now i guess is based on the work of robert Bavall showing the pyramids of the giza plateau reflecting the constellations of orion and the, the three major pyramids there um recapitulating the the belt of orion but there's work now showing that many of the the uh, temples in southeast asia um for example that the the complex at Angkor wat seems to reflect the um the star patterns of draco um the cathedrals of notre dame dedicated to notre dame i think there was eight of them this reflect to a very accurate degree the constellation of virgo mm. i myself have have been studying a lot of the monumental earthwork architecture in North America. And there are several uh, that seem to very accurately portray the Pleiadian cluster on the ground, which, which we know from um, traditions, extant traditions uh, were very important to many of the native American uh, 
cultures, actually, you know, and, and um, so then we have this this reflection of the um, the actual constellations. We also have the alignments that that uh, have occurred, so that when you um, lay out a temple, you know, you're not just laying out the axis of the temple randomly, but you're actually laying it out in a fashion that it's going to reflect the motion of the heavens above. So um, in that context, we find many, many structures. Probably the most well-known, of course, is Stonehenge using the, the summer solstice sunrise alignment. But as the work of, um, I guess, Gerald Hawkins and Fred Hoyle has demonstrated, there's also accurate lunar uh, alignments built into the Stonehenge. Um, I recently spent several trips to the American Southwest studying the, um, the uh, Chacoan culture down there. Uh, and there are some very interesting patterns down there that are essentially identical to um, what we find at Stonehenge. There are lunar alignments and solar alignments built into the patterns, not only of, of an individual temple, but also the whole array of, of complexes that literally, in the case of the Chacoan culture, covers over 10,000 square miles. Um, and the, the various sacred centers were linked by roadways that uh, reflected the passage of the sun and the moon overhead, so that, for example, if you're making a pilgrimage from one sacred site to another sacred site, you're traveling along this roadway, and um, you're being accompanied by the celestial bodies. And so you can essentially, in some ways, even use this system to navigate, because what you would do is, if you're following a lunar alignment, you'll just essentially watch the moon and where it sets on the horizon is the, um, you know, is the trajectory that you're following in your um in your pilgrimage, and then by following that pathway, it leads you to the next sacred center. And this same principle was at work in the monumental earthworks uh, in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys. They were apparently connected by roadways, and the roadways were laid out to reflect the motions of the key heavenly bodies above. And I think this is a, a, a study now that's really just in its infancy. And part of the problem, of course, is that so much of this has been obscured by, you know, the emergence of modern societies you know many of the the monumental earthworks that um, covered the Ohio and Mississippi River Valley were um, erased by the building of cities and through agriculture through railroad construction through highway development so um, what exists now perhaps is not even 10 percent of what was here prior to the arrival of the Europeans but it was a <clears throat> it was pretty phenomenal and clearly anyone who studies and looks into this phenomenon, it becomes apparent that there was a vast civilization on this continent a thousand years ago, far far more sophisticated and far more elaborate and developed than um, we would we would gather from watching cowboy movies from the 1950s. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. Now, how, how does one account for the similarities in construction and architecture using these concepts uh, all over the world, different cultures. Um, are we talking maybe about a single source or are we talking about maybe universal truths that are arrived at independently um, or some combination maybe? 
Yeah, Greg, that's to be one of the interesting questions, and, and that's a question that gets raised quite frequently. And uh, I tend to, to think in terms of, you know, your, your latter um, opinion that it's probably a combination, that there is a universal awareness or understanding of these just because we ourselves are embodiments of these you know, geometric principles, you know, the human anatomy is really a, a yardstick, a meter stick for sacred geometry. That's one of the key things that I try to demonstrate in the classes is that, you know, when you start looking at your own skeletal structure, it's it's just a symphony of sacred geometry and the proportions uh, involved there. But I also think that there's a um, an element of diffusionism in this, uh, that, you know, there, this has been kind of the, the, um, you know, one of the ongoing controversies amongst prehistorians and archaeologists of the, uh, between the splitters and the joiners, you know, that I tend to think that, um, there was an element of diffusion. Um, you know, I, I don't discount the literal possibility of there being a, whatever you'd want to call it, a, a group that had access to this kind of information. If we, you know, if we turn to the, uh, the legends and the traditional accounts, they all are pretty much consistent on the idea that, um, there was somebody from the outside who came in with this information. Um, just right here in, in North Georgia, where I go hiking quite frequently, there's a place called Blood Mountain and the Cherokee held that as very sacred. And, um, the Cherokee had a belief that there was, uh, many of their sacred traditions were inherited from this group. They called them the, um, let's see, it was the, uh, the Nunahai, the Nunahai and the Nunahai roughly translated meant the people who could travel anywhere. And, um, you know, when we turn to the Chacoan culture in the Southwest, um, they referred to the Arnasazi, you know, the ancient ones. Um, you know, when we look at the Sumerian culture, they had the Anunnaki who were essentially, you know, the gods who came in and instructed them in this. And so, you know, if we begin to looking, look into the traditions and, and accept the verity of the traditions themselves, they would suggest that there was a, um, some type of a group, some type of a brotherhood, whatever, however you would want to describe it, that, uh, that had this information. And, um, I have kind of my own theory on, on a possibility here. You know, people quickly rush to the idea of aliens, but I would like to propose something here that I think is perhaps a little bit more, uh, mundane than the idea of aliens, but n- no less profound in its own way. Because I've had this ongoing interest in geology and earth change and have incorporated that into my research, I've done considerable amount of traveling just studying the evidence for geological change and have pretty much become convinced from the evidence that I've seen and the, the work that I'm, that I'm familiar with that, you know, there are two modes of change. The type of more or less uniform gradualistic change that has prevailed pretty much throughout historical times that, that allows us uh, to assume with confidence that, you know, the sun will rise in the morning as it has every other morning of our modern lives, that, uh, you know, that winter follows uh, autumn and that spring follows winter in a, in a very nice, predictable pattern. Um, but 
when you begin to study the longer view of Earth history, you soon become aware of the fact that the normal pace of change has frequently been interrupted. And those interruptions can be uh, quite devastating to the to the um, existing balance of things, whether it's the natural things or the, the cultural things. And so when we go back in history, I mentioned earlier the end of the last ice age occurring around twelve to 13,000 years ago, we find that there were extreme changes in climate, extreme changes in, in vegetation pattern, extreme changes in sea level. Um, essentially, there was a short period of maybe a millennia or two where the normal um, pace of change was completely disrupted. And when the dust settled on this period, uh, around nine to 10,000 years ago, you know, half of the great mammal species of the planet had, had uh, disappeared, had become totally extinct. There was a hiatus in human culture that was recognized by archaeologists and, and uh, defined what had existed before this, this period, uh, the Paleolithic cultures followed by the, the Mesolithic. Um, and from my own researches, I've become convinced that, um, you know, that, that um, the the changes that occurred were so extreme that, um, well, if you consider this, I mean, during the uh, depth of the Ice Age, sea levels worldwide were 400 feet lower. Now, during the Ice Age, the more ideal place that one would want to establish a community would be probably very close to sea level. Well, you know, if sea level rises 400 feet, we, you know, we're talking about the consequences these days of, you know, a global rise in sea level of two to four feet. And, and considering the, the serious consequences of that as a result of global warming. Well, you know, at the end of the last ice age, we had a global warming that was, um, roughly 20 times the projected warming of the, uh, of the next century. And that happened perhaps in as little as a decade or, or less. And in the wake of that warming, we had an enormous melting of the uh, rapidly melting ice sheets um, that raised sea level as much as 400 feet. So if you had settled human communities that were built anywhere near the coastlines of the world, they would have been quite rapidly drowned. Also, when you study the geomorphology, which is the study of landscapes, you can find the overprint of these tremendous events. Um, uh, one of the uh, phenomena that has been often referred to in the geological literature is the idea of a underfit stream or underfit river, which is the idea that a river or a stream is flowing in a channel that's considerably disproportionate or completely outsized relative to the size of the stream that's flowing in it. Well, on uh, in my programs that I do, I have many slides that I have put together to illustrate these things. But uh, as it turns out, like when you look at the study of the river channels of North America, there's virtually not a single one that's not underfit. It, in other words, virtually every river channel in North America carried hugely augmented volumes of water during this transmission transition out of the ice age 13,000 years ago. Um, it's estimated, for example, that the Mississippi um, might have carried volumes of flood water more than a hundred times in excess of modern floods. Um, there were floods, um, you know, in the Ohio River Valley that have been documented to have been 
a depth of more than 200 feet above the modern floodplain. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, there were floods. Oh, for example, down the Columbia River. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that territory out there, but, um, that can only be measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. Um, so, so we're looking at floods that, um, traversed uh, the Columbia River Gorge that were over 800 feet deep. Um, in western Montana, some of the, the, the valleys that I've studied there, for example, the Valley of the Clark Fork River that named after, um, you know, Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition who traveled along the Clark Fork River. Um, there's a area in there where the flood actually flowed, and this is all, almost unimaginable, but it was over 2,000 feet deep. So when you begin to put this kind of information together, what I guess I'm, I'm leading up to here and, and the kind of things that I'm talking about here in North America also occurred all over the planet. And, um, of course, I think right here in these kinds of geological or climatological events, we could find the origins of the universal origins uh, or traditions of the great floods. Um, whether it's the rising of the sea level or the, these tremendous volumes of flow that uh, occurred as a result of the rapid melting of the ice sheet. But in any case, I guess what I'm getting at is that if we couple this kind of um, hard geological insight and uh, archaeological insight along with traditional accounts, we, we, we find the, the idea that there was a former order of things, you know, whether it was, you know, expressed in the antediluvian civilizations, you know, prior to the great biblical deluge, or whether it was, you know, the, the, um, you know, the Atlantean civilizations that Plato talks about in Timaeus and Critias. Um, there are many accounts of this from all over the world that when, you know, when you take them collectively and look at them seem to imply that there was a previous order of things that was considerably more sophisticated than, modern science has been willing to recognize. And another factor when you look at these kinds of legends is the idea that <clears throat> there seem to be always some individual or some group of individuals that had um, had prior knowledge of these events. It's, you know, some disaster was impending. And, uh, you know, whether it was Noah or whether it was Zisithrus or whether it was Utnapishtim or, or Deucalion or Manu, I mean, the, the, Culture heroes are in, in the dozens who, and it's always the same. Somehow or another, they had foreknowledge that there was this impending event. They, they took preparations. Um, you know, of course, you're probably familiar with the Masonic legends about, uh, Enoch or his counterpart, Lamech, having foreknowledge of the impending flood. And so he sets up the two pillars. Uh, he creates, in the story of Enoch, he creates the underground vault and, and, um, encodes the, 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 the sacred information and scientific knowledge, mathematical knowledge of his day and seals it in this, uh, nine chambered underground vault and then sets up the two pillars, the one of marble and one of brass to withstand the, the flood, withstand the fire so that uh, survivors would then could find their way to the vault and, and recover this lost knowledge. Um, I look at this and, and acknowledge that there could be a component of literal truth to this idea, that there may have been a previous order of things, and perhaps there were survivors who were able to um, preserve some elements of, of knowledge. And, um, you know, this could be the source of where uh, the stories of the gods come from rather than aliens, you know, it may be 
fruitful to consider that it could be our own species. But, you know, think of it this way. What if we discovered that, you know, Earth was about to be struck by an asteroid or a comet and there was going to be a, a extreme devastation and disruption and probably maybe not the extinction of the human species, but enough disruption to cause the termination of modern civilization? What steps would we take to ensure that some of our legacy and some of our knowledge and some of our understanding of things survived to try to reestablish civilization in the wake of a catastrophe? And um, what would we do? And, and you see, when you look back at uh, the, the epoch from, from 6,000 to 10,000 years ago, of course, what we find is essentially scattered nomadic uh, tribes, essentially hunter-gatherer tribes, and uh, I kind of entertain as a hypothesis the idea that there may have been two types of survivors. Those that survived just by luck of the draw, they were in the right place at the right time. But in the aftermath of these great global changes, they were, for the most part, preoccupied with the the day-to-day necessities of survival. So they weren't too concerned with, you know, higher scientific or sophisticated knowledge and awareness. They were just pretty much preoccupied with surviving. Another group, a minority group, perhaps, survived because they planned to survive. And and I'm kind of drawing again here on some of the the more the, the legends, the stories and the myths. Um but survived because they had foreknowledge and intended to survive and and it was a group such as this that that um, came across this barrier between the world ages and when the time was ripe, um, when population had, um, you know, increased after, you know, the, the epoch of being fruitful and multiply, which certainly would seem to be a good piece of advice if the human population had, had crashed, which I think is very likely in the wake of these events. Um, and essentially you have, scattered remnants of, of survivors. In North America, we had evidence of a culture called the Clovis culture that seemed to have existed prior to the, to the great changes. And then after a hiatus of about a millennium, we see the emergence of a distinct cultural type, usually given the name of the Folsom culture. Um, and for about a thousand years, there's very little record of any human activity in North America between these two cultures. And this is paralleled in, you know, in Europe and Asia as well. Um, and so I raised the possibility that, um, you know, there could have been small groups that uh, did survive because that was their intention to survive. And it was these groups that managed to preserve some of the legacy of what had come before. And so when we see population increasing throughout this period from, you know, six to, to 10,000 years ago, once we hit five to 6,000 years ago, we could be looking at, you know, where the population has become viable enough that there's, there's basically a labor base, a labor pool available to, to draw from. And so somewhere between, you know, around 4,000 to 5,000 years ago is when we see the, the rise of these early great cultures, you know, the, um, the old kingdom in Egypt, roughly paralleling in time the the rise of the Sumerian culture in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and in the Indus Valley, um, Mohenjo-Daro and Harappas, 
you know, we see the first wave of great megalithic work up in the British Isles in Northern Europe. We see the first wave of um, monumental earthwork architecture, um, Poverty Point, Watson Break, and others in, in the Mississippi Valley. All of these things are all taking place within a roughly two-century period of one another. And, you know, it's very interesting that after millennia of basically not much happening, all of a sudden we see this tremendous spurt of activity in these geographically isolated regions. And then we see, when we begin to look into it in more depth, we see that there's this um, system, apparently, that unites them, that they're each concerned with astronomy, they're each concerned with the geometry, that there's engineering principles at work that seem to have emerged out of nowhere, essentially, you know. You look at the old second dynasty of the old kingdom in Egypt, and we've got the the idea that, you know, here you basically had subsistence farmers, and then a generation later, they're erecting these tremendous structures. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow there's there's a, a, a disconnect there, in, in my opinion, in the more conventional interpretations of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think seen in the context you present of the – worldwide cataclysm or cataclysms that construction, this megalithic construction based on astronomy, geometry, and sacred uh, numbers makes a lot more sense, I think. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Randall Carlson, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. It's really been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And um, if you had any final thoughts for anybody listening, I the floor is is yours. Okay. Well, um, I guess the final thought would simply be that, you know, there is this, we live in this amazing time when there's so much new knowledge now that's available, uh, you know, so much more readily than it has been, you know. When I started doing my researches in the, in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, you know, there was quite a bit of information available, but, you know, I had to spend you know, many hours, for example, going to libraries and looking things up and trying to track down information that now I can literally find in minutes. Mm. Um, you know, um, rare books that have been posted online uh, that I would have never been able to have accessed, um, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I mean, some of the rare books that I sought out, I actually had, went to um, um to Holland, I went to, to Amsterdam to go to the uh, Bibliothèque Philosophales there because that's considered to be one of the most uh, uh, extensive occult libraries in the world. So I had to tr- literally travel across the Atlantic and go to this place and spend you know several days there researching to get access to books that I can now find online. So you know we're in this um, this period of tremendous ferment right now. And, and it's very exciting. Uh, there are ideas out there that have been in my mind in hibernation for centuries. And just like I, I sort of see that what's impending, uh, is perhaps an epoch similar to the high middle ages where, you know, for, for centuries, you know, after the dark ages ended, there was just this sort of this lull before the storm. And then all of a sudden, just it's almost as if the you know somebody um you know fired the pistol and then everybody just went to work um you know and in the next century you had uh 80 great abbeys going up you know in in Europe over 500 churches that 
that displayed these, uh, you know, incredible, sophisticated engineering and, and astronomy and geometry, et cetera, et cetera. And when you look at that uh, phenomena uh, of that time period, from roughly the middle of the 12th century to the very earliest decades of the 14th century, what we think of as the High Gothic, it was just an incredible time. I mean, and, and you look at the, the work that was being undertaken and the scale of the work, um, you realize that it literally had to require the, um, you know, the efforts of, of the whole of society had to be around, be behind it. Um, you know, when you look at Chartres Cathedral, for example, in just in the, the little village of Chartres and you go, wait a second, there, there, there's, there's a disconnect here. The, the cathedral is so vast and awesome. And here you've got this little village. How is it that, that this little village of a few hundred people could, could create, execute such a work as this? Well, it wasn't just that village. It was the whole of European society in something, something that we haven't been able to identify yet. Some missing factor served to inspire a, a whole generation of people to undertake this great work. And what we see you know, in the Gothic times had its um, counterparts in, in earlier times. And when I was mentioning earlier about the, um, you know, the sudden wave of building activity that took place, um, you know, between 4,000 and 4,300 uh, years ago um, during the Old Kingdom and during the Sumerian times and Indus Valley and so forth. Again, it was almost as if, you know, somebody said the bell rang and everybody jumped up after, you know, rest time and said, okay, time to get to work again. And, and suddenly you have this amazing flowering of this tremendous architecture. And that's the only way you can describe it is like a flowering of, of, of this phenomenon. You know, if you go back to the, to the middle ages at the same time that the, that the inception of the Gothic building wave started, you could go over to Southeast Asia and Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam. And you had this amazing, uh, flurry of activity that, that coincided exactly in time where they were building these amazing temples like Angkor Wat and Angkor Thom. If you come over to the New World, you had, again, a parallel, the, the, the last wave of, of the, um, the, um, the Mayan classical period was during this episode. Also, the, um, period from the, in the, the last great, uh, earthworks, uh, that uh, occurred in North America was during this time precisely. And so you had this um, this period where um, we had all of this amazing activity going on simultaneously, and it was almost as if it, it again, it, it was launched by, you know, um, somebody pulled out the pistol, shot the pistol off, and everybody just started going to work. And, and we see the same patterns expressing themselves, same geometry, same astronomy, and this to me raises a great mystery is what it was, what was this factor, this missing factor that, that, that triggered this activity. Maybe we're on the threshold of such a thing happening again. And it would be very interesting if we were. I would uh, find that life could get very interesting if um, suddenly we were to set aside our petty differences and decide that there's some greater work that we all have to get involved in. Boy, that would be something. Wouldn't it? It would. Well, it's really been a pleasure to speak with you today. And uh, again, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And um, I hope we can do it again very soon. 
Well, I'm, I'll be up for it whenever you are, Greg. Well, that's it for this episode, but I hope you will join us in the membership section where Randall Carlson will share some of his thoughts about the formal scientific community's acceptance of some of the ideas that he's proposed, as well as his thoughts about Freemasonry and the founding of the United States of America. Please join us for that fascinating conversation and help support a cult of personality podcast in the process you can find the membership section at a cult of personality.net slash membership or there's a link on the sidebar of the occult of personality.net website i can't stress enough how much your support means to the continuation of this podcast and i want to express again my sincere gratitude to all those who do subscribe because your help has made all the difference and keeps the show going. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. And hearts and crystals